from the University of Cambridge, this is Election, a weekly politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and we're going to be coming to you each week here from my office in the Cambridge Politics Department to talk about this election, the campaign, what might happen, what does happen, and we're going to keep going until Britain has a new government, however long that takes. This week, my guest is John Norton, a chronicler of the internet from the very beginning and one of Britain's leading analysts in the political and social implications of the tech revolution, everything from the Snowden revelations through to the dominance of Facebook and Google. John's going to be telling us what he thinks is absent from this campaign. You could say that in the British election at the moment, uh, the internet seems to be missing. Full stop. And he's going to be talking about some of the disruptive forces at work in British politics. Is UKIP an example of a disruptive innovation? The answer is it depends what you regard as disruption. If by disruption you mean irritation, yes, UKIP is a disruption. (laughs) It's a fascinating conversation about the uneasy mix between democracy and technology. Stay tuned. Before that, we discuss this week's current events. This is the fourth of our weekly podcasts, and listening back to the previous three, I've been struck by how easy it is to sound despairing about modern British politics. All of our guests have been a little gloomy, perhaps with the exception of last week's Martin Jakes, but he was cheerful about China, he wasn't cheerful about Britain. So I thought maybe it was time to start looking for some good news, and to see if we can find anything positive to say about this campaign or about British democracy. I'm joined by our regular panel... Helen Thompson, who's an expert on economics, Finbar Livesey on public policy, and Chris Brooke on political theory. And we're going to be talking about what they think is good about the current campaign, either for the politicians or for the voters. One of the things that's interesting about this campaign is that there's an awful lot of negativity about it. But if you look at it from the point of view of the main governing party, the Conservatives, they're fighting the election on what, from the point of view of any other governing party, probably in the G20, certainly in the European Union, looks like a very strong hand. The economy, by all the short-term macroeconomic indicators, is doing rather well. It's performing better than pretty much any other economy in the EU, with the possible exception of Denmark and Austria, compares with the United States. Most governing parties would die for having this kind of economy to fight an election with in the current economic context. So there's good news about the economy and the Conservatives are failing as politicians because they can't turn good news into poll numbers and votes. I think that's certainly true in the sense that it is a failure of the politicians. I think it also just says something about the times in which we live and that people don't actually trust that things are going well, even though on the surface it looks like they are. There's a pervasive sense that something is wrong. Because there's also a story here which is that the Conservatives are polling better, far out polling Labour on who people trust to run the economy. And they're also far up polling Labour on who they think offers the better leadership. But you would think that you score on the economy, you score on the leadership, you win. Absolutely. And that's one of the most interesting things about the campaign that that at the moment is not translating into a clear victory for the or a clear apparent victory for the Conservatives. But I suspect it actually says something about the Labour Party rather than about the Conservatives. Now we're party. drifting back into negativity again. <laughs> can, can we pull it back? We're looking for the good news about the campaign. Well, there's an interesting sense that the voters are more engaged. Um, there's an ongoing survey of the likelihood to vote that's been uh, done in Essex since 2004. And you see that tick up and up and up as you get closer to a general election. And the current survey is indicating a likely turnout of around 70% plus 
much higher than 65, 64% of the last two general elections. That must be a good thing. More people are engaging with the election. More people are likely to vote. And do you think this is a spillover from the Scottish referendum, which, of course, we know was the recent democratic event that had the highest turnout in modern history, 85? 85%. I think it's partly that, but I think also people care more about politics again in a way that it directly hurt them so much in the last decade, not to go back to negativity. But people have seen what happened with the financial crash. People have seen a coming together of issues that they think they can now affect through the ballot box. They're more likely to vote. And and that's one of the stories about democracy. The good news and the bad news sometimes go together. One reason that turnout is high is often because the stakes are high. And when the stakes are high, it's because people really mind about the outcome, partly because they fear what could go wrong. But it's also the case that if people are engaged with this election, politicians must be engaging them in some sense. So, Chris, what, what are the politicians doing right, do you think, in this election? We can see in the recent uh, tuition fees announcement, I think we can see the Labour Party playing a very difficult hand quite astutely with the promise to cut tuition fees from £9,000 to £6,000. It's not obviously great public policy. It's not obviously great economics because it'll have a tendency to increase austerity in the, uh, in the near term. Uh, And it's not obviously great for students, because most students will, in fact, as far as I can tell, end up paying more or less the same amount back over the course of their working lives. But, I think there's a but coming here, because we've just had three negatives, but it's good politics. But they've managed to get the headline figure down from £9,000 to £6,000. They've managed to uh, tell a plausible story about how they're going to pay for that, in a context where everyone, especially young people, want to see fees coming down. They've got the headline, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see young, younger voters, student voters, beginning to drift a bit more firmly into the Labour column. I think it's clever politics. I think they've pay, played a tricky hand well. Finbar, do you agree with that? I, I completely agree. It's terrible public policy, fantastic politics. The snap polls from YouGov say that 75 to 80% of likely voters agree with the policy. And we have to be careful. We are in a university talking about university tuition fees, saying that it's not good public policy. But in terms of a play to get a headline and to get that much of a reaction, positivity towards a single statement, fantastic. So in a sense, we've got two stories here. So the story that Helen told us, which is that the Tories whether you want to call it public policy, but the Tories have got a good underlying story to tell about actual outcomes, but the politics isn't working. And then Labour have got a less plausible story to tell about what might actually happen, but the politics, the dynamics of the politics are much better. So, Helen, if good policy and bad politics collides with bad policy and good politics, where does democracy come down in that conflict, do you think? The question about whether it's good politics is a matter of dispute because at the heart of this issue is a distributional question. Whose side do you take in the generational conflicts of interest between younger voters and older voters? But just as importantly, it's where do you put the balance of good politics, to use that category, in terms of the difference between young people who go to university and young people who've got no desire to go to university. And so I somewhat disagree with Chris and Finbar in in this respect, is I don't think that there's a a monolithic group of young voters who can be shifted into Labour's column by this policy. And in one sense, I think it reinforces negative image around Miliband of his sort of academic geek kind of style that he stuck his neck out about this particular issue of all things. Now we're drifting back into negativity again. I'm going to say what I think is positive about this election, and you can agree with me or disagree with me, which is that it's an election. 
And it's a traditional view that as you get closer to polling day, it does somewhat sort out some of the claims that politicians have been making. And it starts to put them under the kind of scrutiny that they don't get during the regular run of the mill of the five-year cycle. This is the, this is the traditional story that's told about democracy, which is that you get a lot of froth in between elections, but elections do focus people's minds. And my sense of this election is that it is starting to focus people's minds, um, that some of the fringe parties are having some of their wilder claims put to the test. That's part of the role of the media in an election like this, and the media is playing that, that traditional role. And I don't think, it's a bit like a job interview, I don't think that you end up picking the person that you want to hire on the basis of this kind of stuff. But often you do reject someone that you think you probably don't want to hire if they're not so good at answering these kinds of questions. And I think we're starting to see that. And I think that's broadly positive. Um, as we get close to polling day, I think it will get more and more pronounced. It does mean there'll be a drift back to the two main parties, probably. And again, I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Maybe that's a dangerous thing to say in this climate. Does anyone want to disagree with me about that? I agree with you, David, that there's going to be a move back towards the two main political parties, in part because the other parties are going to be, particularly the Greens and UKIP, are going to be put under more intense scrutiny. I think, though, that in the context in which this election is taking place, that that will have a negative consequence as well as the one that you said, and that voters will, in the end, resent that they're forced back into this bipolar choice of saying, I really have to choose between Ed Miliband and David Cameron to be Prime Minister. And so that is the story. I think this is the story about democratic politics. The good news and the bad news do always go hand in hand. I guess, yes. Thanks to Helen, Finbar and Chris. We'll be talking to them more later in the show. Before that, I spoke this week to John Norton, chronicler of the internet from its early days and the author of the book From Gutenberg to Zuckerberg, What You Really Need to Know About the Internet. We started by talking about the fact that this is only the second Facebook election and maybe the first one in which social media could actually make a difference to the outcome. So I asked John, did he think that Facebook might actually decide this election? It could be. I mean, the interesting thing from experience in the United States in the last congressional election was that Facebook could have, did have, a small but measurable impact on voter turnout in some cases, because they did an experiment and it did show us an apparently significant but small increase in voter turnout. So, so in that sense, you could say there might be a Facebook effect. Given it's an election where a very small margin could decide it one way or the other. Yes, in this particular case, in some seats it might be quite critical. But what would make it really critical, I think, is if Facebook were able to encourage more younger voters to turn out, because that that could have a significant impact on the coming election. In the last election, I think only 51% of young people voted. When they do vote, I think, statistically, they tend to vote Labour more. The only joker in this pack this time would be that Quite a lot of younger voters, I think, are going to say their vote will vote green. That's a bit of a, a puzzle. Um, but if Facebook did uh, use the same technique as these in the US, which is to put on a, some people's pages, I voted button, and have, say, pictures of six of their friends who had also announced that they'd voted, that was what had an impact in the United States. Who knows, it might have an impact here. And if, if the impact were on younger people, I think it might be significant. And we call it an experiment. It's a kind of typical Facebook experiment in that it's, it's a way of trying to see what kinds of behaviours can be changed by what kinds of devices. 
And on the one hand, it sounds like it's great for democracy because more people will turn out to vote if you put the I voted button on there. On the other hand, it's not obviously democratic to be running these kinds of experiments on the voters, often without them knowing it. Yeah, but I mean, democracy is an optional extra with social media. That's what I mean. That's <laughs> and what particularly you, Facebook. I, I, don't, I don't think... I mean, it would be disastrous for them if they got caught in some kind of controversy about whether or not they were actually really interfering in, in electoral politics. But on the other hand, it's clear that they are capable of exercising some kind of impact on the behaviour of people who use that service. That could be creepy. There is another example from another Facebook experiment in the United States where they demonstrated there was what they called a social contagion effect, which is that they could, it seemed, have a small but measurable impact on the emotions of users. Basically, they were able to manipulate some people's news feeds so that they saw upbeat or downbeat messages from their friends, and that had, apparently, a measurable impact on the people who are the subjects of the experiment. And so there's a sense in which you could argue that social media could spread some kind of emotional contagion. And when you use words like manipulation and contagion, it doesn't sound quite so sunnily pro-democratic as just getting the vote out. Well, exactly. But the point about social media, especially Facebook, but it probably applies to some of the others as well, is that everything that Facebook users see in their newsfeed is manipulated in one way or another. Usually the manipulation is algorithmic um, because it's trying to produce things in their news feeds that will encourage them to possibly buy things or to pay attention to advertising. So there is no such thing, there's no such thing as a raw Facebook news feed. So there's two stories really that you can tell about technology in this election campaign. There's the more familiar one, which is what we've been describing where we started out, which was how could social media encourage more people to vote? How can politicians use social media to get their message across? And then there's the other story, which is this deeper story about we now live in a world where forms of manipulation and coercion that we might not even be aware of are happening under the radar. And politicians aren't talking about that at all. I mean, there's almost no discussion of technology in the campaign. There's just discussion of what impact technology could have on the campaign. Where are the arguments about the power of Facebook and how Facebook does indeed manipulate us? As far as we can see, those arguments don't exist at the moment. You could say that in the British election at the moment, uh, the internet seems to be missing, full stop. One of the things that really puzzles me is why given that, say, fundraising for political parties is such a controversial issue and indeed such a toxic issue here, why haven't, the Labour Party in particular, why haven't they uh, used the Obama technique using the net for fundraising? Because it really works for that, as Obama showed, but they haven't. And the other thing that's interesting is that despite the fact that the political parties appear to ignore the, the net more or less, there's a lot of quite interesting stuff about the election on the net. For example, many, many people use Reddit. And there's a lot of interesting and thoughtful stuff on Reddit about the election. But as far as I know, no party leader has uh, offered or perhaps even thought about doing an AMA session on, on Reddit, that is to say, an Ask Me Anything session. Um, I think the thought of Ask Me Anything makes them a little bit anxious. Although well, they, does, they, they kind of do it on Mum's net, <laughs> surprisingly. Well, they, they, they'll, they'll do it on somewhere where they, where they may... Where they think, think it, it won't be anything at all. Yeah, be. yeah. But, but the other thing is that um, all the discussion about debates has been about TV debates, which reflects, I think, my perception at any rate, that, that this is a very dated kind of election campaign. It's still entirely focused on old-style mass media. It does the same tricks as we've seen for the last 25 years, the, the phony photo opportunities, 
the sight of, of politicians who have never had a job in their lives in factories where people do real work. The stage release of manifesto pledges. The, the billboard advertising campaigns. Oh, that's, oh, that's the, it's as if the internet didn't exist. And when they start talking about, about a public debate, it's all about TV. But the idea that they might actually <laughs> have discussions, real discussions with real people in a dangerous environment like Reddit has not crossed their minds, or if it has, they have immediately erased it. And then something else that probably will be true is if these debates happen, and they'll happen on TV, and they'll be consumed in this traditional way, within the debates, they won't be talking about this stuff. And there'll be some big gaps. Now, you've spent quite a lot of time over the past 18 months talking about what the world looks like after Edward Snowden told us how the world really works in ways none of us knew or understood, and we're only beginning to understand the implications of huge new forms of surveillance, the way that information is shared, the way that national politicians are subject to these international pressures. And yet, in an election, which we're told, as we are with every election, is the most important one for a generation, no one's talking about what might be the most important issue. This is really weird. It's, it's all this case of important dogs that are embarking in the night. And, and of course, for me, surveillance is a top one. But other ones that are not talked about much are inequality is not talked about much. And it certainly isn't talked about much in the sense where it is politically toxic for at least one of the big parties and perhaps two, which is that in, if you look at the Tory campaign, for example, it is clearly focused towards older, viewers, older voters, towards, towards my generation of baby boomers, basically, because A, they, they vote whereas young, younger people don't. And the main issue, of course, in relation to this generation is the way in which we, my generation, has accumulated wealth in a way that our children and grandchildren have been disadvantaged. And that's, that's a really serious issue, in my opinion, and it's nowhere in the debate. It also explains why if somebody could actually get younger voters out, it might make a difference. So unless your children or grandchildren are lucky enough to work in the tech industry, where there are small pockets of vast wealth... But that's that's right. But I mean, but that's that's a reflection that's part of, of what's not being talked about. Yeah, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about the fact that that uh, these new industries do not, in general, create jobs for other people. They create jobs for small elites who are very well paid and very well rewarded, and they generate a great deal of wealth for their shareholders. And that wealth is not, in general, shared up. Because another thing that might be discussed in a campaign, as in any electoral campaign, where employment is a key issue and politicians make various pledges about employment, not quite maybe in the way they did in the past, given mass unemployment doesn't quite have some of the features it did in the 1980s. But we are possibly on the cusp of a new technological age in which various traditional ways of earning a living will disappear. There's some hyperbolic stuff about this, and we don't have to buy into the whole story to believe that machines may replace human beings in some fields. And the entire employment landscape might change over electoral cycle or two, and yet electoral politics does not seem to be geared up in any way to talking about those kinds of questions. No, and insofar as it is geared up to talk about it, it talks about employment in an older mass employment context. But what is most likely to happen, and even, as you say, you don't have to buy into the hyperbole about this, but the, what's most likely to happen is that the next categories of jobs that will, in fact, be eliminated by relatively uh, modest computerization are what we would call white-collar jobs. That's where the next wave of unemployment comes from. And it comes in job categories which we have traditionally and in the political system still do regard as being relatively secure. And that's not been talked about at all. Can you imagine 
the circumstances in which this stuff rises up the political agenda because Snowden was a scandal and scandals come and go and people forget them, they remember the names, but they the issues didn't quite filter through. We've recently had a scandal with Malcolm Rifkind, who happened to be chair of the relevant parliamentary committee that was looking into some of this stuff. We remember the scandal about Rifkind. Are we talking about the things that his committee was investigating? No, we're not. No, we're not. So scandals don't do it. What would trigger a political argument within an electoral system about the impact of the new technology upon people's jobs, personal freedom, their privacy? Anything? The only thing that might change it is if one of the political parties focused on the reality of these things. I mean, for, for example, um, the, the prevailing mantra about, about technology and progress is that although there is some collateral damage when we when we move to a new phase, the collateral damage being people who lose their jobs and so on, um, nobody actually really looks into that in, in a serious way. And the most recent case I've, I've found where somebody has looked into it is Rochester, which was a company town owned by a big and very profitable and very dominant, globally dominant company called Kodak. Kodak as a company has been eliminated, basically, because of, because of digital technology. Which it helped to create. Which it helped to create. Ironically, it was in Kodak's research labs that digital sensor was first evolved. But Kodak was this fantastically dominant company, and then and it invented this stuff and didn't pay attention to it, and in the end it was, it was wiped out. Okay, Kodak employed 145,000 people worldwide, of whom something like 60,000 lived and worked in Rochester. And if you go to Rochester now, what you see is a really struggling urban environment. But more importantly, what you find is about 55,000 people whose pensions have evaporated. Now, that's what this stuff does. And on the one hand, you can, you can be hyperbolic about the prospects for a Silicon Valley or for a Silicon Roundabout, as the, as the government talks about in London or whatever. And it's great stuff. But actually, the collateral damage that this technology will do and is doing is colossal. And it doesn't figure in anybody's manifesto. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And it's disruption in action, but it does happen in pockets here and there. It's not, you don't get a wave. It's a bit like the, the mass employment, unemployment story. You don't get waves of this stuff sweeping whole electorates. A lot of it can happen under the radar. And the people in Rochester... They're suffering, but they're not rioting, presumably because it's a there's a sort of bedrock of prosperity underpinning this gradual, well, sudden decline, but disappearance of people's living standards over time. Uh, so what we're not seeing is the kind of traditional triggers for political change, which is mass experience of a particular phenomenon in the kind of time frame that makes politicians sit up and notice. Yeah, the, the internet is global, but its impact can be local. In the context of Britain and Europe, the differences between, say, Britain and indeed Ireland and Greece and, and Spain are instructive because in Greece and Spain, 
the austerity regime has been so severe that it has it has triggered a really powerful insurgent political response. We haven't seen that here, and interesting questions would be why. You know, I, I remember putting out a tweet on Twitter saying, "Who is the Syriza of the UK?" and I got back a lot of interesting answers. The consensus was, if there is one, it's the Green Party. That's not a convincing... <laughs> but I don't think that's... <laughs> so that means have, there isn't one. That, that means there isn't one. And the question is, why not? The answer could be that the, the, the fundamental welfare net in Britain has actually been more resilient and more supportive than it has been in, in Greece and, and in Spain. In which case, things, although they're bad, have not got quite to the level where people really, really are desperate in sufficient numbers to evoke some kind of political response. So what, what we have instead is a kind of mini response, very patchy, as expressed in things like UKIP. But I think that's, that's all it is. There's nothing in terms of youth agitation in, in Britain as there are in some other continental countries. And you could say the other difference between, say, Spain and Greece and Britain is that this is a very, very long-standing democracy with political parties that have been around forever. Even the Labour Party has been one of the main two parties for nearly a century. Greece and Spain are, by historical standards, young democracies. There's a, there's a real memory of pre-democratic order, but there's also a sense that a lot of this stuff is quite fragile. And again, using the language of the internet age that you're so familiar with, I'm sure you're sick of it, what is it that disrupts these established, well-entrenched institutions that feel that they can't fail? And you could describe the two main British political parties as falling into that category. They've been around long enough that they think that they can withstand almost anything. And some of that feeds through to the voters as well, who just get overly familiar with this stuff. So there's also just a question, never mind whether it's on the Greek or Spanish model, but what would disrupt in a two-party system, essentially a first-past-the-post two-party system? What would disrupt it? And would the technology play a role in that, do you think? Well, before we get to whether the technology would make a difference, come, come back to your description of, of what we've got. What, what we have is a two-party system, which is now being stretched to try and accommodate a six-party reality. The second thing is that the two big parties, in 1951, for example, had 97% of the vote. Between them, they shared a colossal proportion of the vote. And now each of them is struggling to get 30%. So at that level, they are not like they were, first of all, they're wasting away somehow. In terms of, of party membership, it's, it's quite dramatic. I mean, the, in the 1950s, the Tory party had, I think, 3 million members, it now has maybe 150,000. I don't know what's happened to Labour membership, but my, my hunch is that it's gone down as well. So they exist in name. They appear to be, and they profess to be similar to what they were, but they're completely different animals. They're wasting enfeebled giants in a strange way and protected, I think, up to now by the, by the first-past-the-post system. So if you wanted to think about what would disrupt this, one thought is lowering the voting age might make a difference. I thought that was very striking about the Scottish referendum, which was that they did give the vote to younger people, and they played a part in that in that discussion, in that discourse. I mean, it, it might not make any difference, but if, if 16-year-olds had the vote throughout the United Kingdom, it might be a hell of a shock to the system. Do you think there's... Is this stretching it too far to say there might be analogies here between these lumbering political parties and, say, Kodak or the equivalent, which is they've been around for a while... Uh, they had this dominant position. In a way, they created the thing that may lead to their own destruction. It's not as if they haven't been implicit sure. in this. And they can vanish almost overnight. Or do you think those kind of political 
market analogies fall down at a certain point. I, I, I think I think the analogies are interesting, but the, but they're not perfect. I mean, one of the things that prevents it from catastrophic collapse from the point of view of the big parties is the electoral system itself. So that that's a constraint that would stop a truly dramatic collapse happening. You might have it in a proportional representation system. But and, you, and it might happen in Scotland. I mean, it is possible it, that Labour in Scotland, Scotland yeah. will be the yeah. Kodak of this election. Yes. But in terms of trying to apply the theory of industrial disruption to our politics, you know, for example, the question that people have asked me, which is, is UKIP an example of a disruptive innovation? And the answer is it depends what you regard as disruption. If by disruption you mean irritation, yes. UKIP is a disruption. But in terms of is it disruption in the sense that uh, digital technology was for Kodak? I don't think so, because the characteristics of, of disruptive innovation in technology generate is that you have corporations that are doing really well, and they do what they do really well. And then along comes an insurgent with a new idea, which actually is very inferior to what the existing outfits do. And they ignore it because it doesn't seem to be a threat. There is a small group of, of early adopters in, in the marketplace who see this new thing, even though it's largely imperfect, often flaky, as being really interesting and also as much cheaper than the standard offering. And, and then, then the process starts. And by the time the, the, the incumbents realise that they're really going to be in trouble, they've had it. And that's the, that's the way it works in, in, in the technology industry, as far as we know. I mean, this process was laid out a long time ago by Clayton Christensen in that book, The Innovator's Dilemma. But within the political framework, I can't see it happening that way. Because, I mean, UKIP doesn't have a, a serious offering. Even They may have a flaky offering, but it's not, it's not a serious um, governance option. No, they, um, they're probably claiming to be cheaper, but even that, no one really buys. Yeah, so but, but and the other thing is that UKIP's early adopters are not necessarily demographically likely to be in the long run <laughs> a good market. So I, I I think it's an interesting thought. At the moment, I can't see within the British context any plausible insurgent. So UKIP is not Uber. UKIP. I'm, I'm mixing them up already. UKIP is not Uber, or UKIP is not Uber. I don't think so. No. No. Well, in the sense that the British public's been taken for a ride, perhaps. But, but otherwise, no. I, I can't see it happening that way. Not least because UKIP are nowhere near having their product tested, which would happen if they were in government. The difference between being an irritant because you're able to offer a vehicle for people who want to complain and offering something which they will then test by how well it performs. Yes. We're a mile off that. Yeah, we're a mile off that. I mean, the thing that's very interesting about Uber is that um, it... it it has a product in this, that, that people who use it find very attractive. Um, and fact, it works. And it works. And, and I, I know lots of my friends and colleagues um, use Uber and rave about it. Um, but it, it has very disruptive effects, and there's a fair amount of destruction going on as well as creation. Um, and that's, that makes it so, so controversial. In fact, I think that in the case of Uber... Um, the, the problem is that so many of the people who use it actually feel somehow ashamed or worried that they do. <laughs> it's a bit like you're know, the person who votes Tory and is, and is ashamed of it, so whatever. You know, that's, there's that kind of, uh, there's that kind of uh, ambivalence about it, which is what makes it such a thorny subject for so many people. And it's, in a way, it's the other way around to politics in that the product works, but we don't much like the people who are providing us with the product. Whereas in politics, whether we like the people who are providing us with the, poli- the product is often the absolutely deciding factor in whether we... It is the deciding factor. ...we yeah. choose that product yeah. or not. Yeah, um, that's true. So, so the, dis- the disanalogy is yeah. there. Yeah. Just to come back then to a, a subject that I touched on and we, we didn't pick up, which is 
where is Edward Snowden? Well, we know where he is, but where is he in this election campaign? One of the parties that's clearly got a difficult pitch to make this time around are the Liberal Democrats, which means that there isn't a party really that you can associate with the freedom side of some of these questions, the traditional small L liberal side of some of these questions to do with our privacy, the ways in which we might be being surveilled, the reach of the state, particularly the reach of the secret branches of the state. That's missing. Does that worry you that we don't have a party standing up for small L liberal values? It it worries me that there isn't a serious public discourse about this, because I think in the long run, this is likely to be the biggest challenge to our democracy. We have blundered into, as as a species, we've blundered into um, a technology built by my generation, the boomer generation, which seemed at the beginning to be wonderfully empowering and liberating and so on, and also turned out to have some other affordances which are much more sinister, the main one being that it is a tool for comprehensive surveillance of everything that happens. And in those circumstances, the only way a democracy could deal with that I think, is by having a really muscular oversight of it. Because there's no question, for example, there's no dispute that the internet, in addition to being a wonderful technology, is also an extremely dangerous one. Um, The the levels of cybercrime, for example, on the net, I would say are unconscionable and nobody is talking about it. It's colossal. So, And the same goes for cyber espionage and for all kinds of other stuff. There's a lot of really, really bad stuff on it. So any democracy needs to be able to find a way of defending itself and then dealing with this. There's no question about that. That means it needs organisations like GCHQ and the NSA. Again, no question. And it needs those organisations to be to be effective, to be well-resourced, to be staffed with really bright and inventive people and all that. Nobody disputes any of that. But the overarching question is, given that you have to create such a surveillance apparatus in order to protect democracy or to protect your society, you have to have some way of making sure that it doesn't go rogue that it doesn't engage in mission creep, that it doesn't do things that fundamentally undermine the values that it's supposedly protecting. And the only way to do that is by having really muscular oversight. And by that I mean oversight that is run by people who are politically and socially credible. In other words, the electorate has to believe that these are really independent, untainted, uncorrupt people. Secondly, they have to be resourced with the kind of technical expertise that is at least as good as what the agencies have at their disposal. And it has to be sceptical. I think it's possible to do that, um, but you'd have to be very serious about it. You'd have to take it very seriously. It would be a very big undertaking. And you'd have to make sure that it was both supportive of the security apparatus, but also sceptical about it. That's what we need. And what we have, what we absolutely haven't got. What we have is, is oversight theatre. The big question, from my point of view, is is given that this stuff doesn't surface in electoral campaigns, how are we ever going to get to it? How are we ever going to get away from oversight theatre into real oversight, in which case we can start to rest easy on our beds? And that's nowhere discussed anywhere in this election. And part of the problem, of course, and this is just a fact of democratic life, is that elections are themselves a species of theatre. Um, yes. And the electoral theatre and oversight theatre, in a way, go together. Thank um, you. But it's also true that muscular oversight does require public engagement. As it were, secret overseers of the secret state isn't going to cut it. The thing that gives it 
muscle is the fact that the public are involved. And that's why politicians have to play a role in this. You can't have muscular oversight in the absence of public debate, which is why the absence of public debate is a real gap in our democracy at the moment. That's what really worries me about this. I think I think the absence, the fact that it doesn't figure in our debate, to be fair to the Germans, I think it does figure in their electoral thing. But of course they have a very different <laughs> historical memory of they how some... oversight, to put it mildly, can go wrong. They, they have. and, and Not just oversight, but surveillance. Surveillance. I, I mean, they, they had they had comprehensive analogue surveillance run by the Stasi. OK, so they have some idea. At least half of the people in Germany have some experience of this, including Angela Merkel. In this country, it's different. One of the things that's really puzzled me is why is the British public so relaxed about this stuff? Um, one hypothesis that I sometimes think about is, is that it has something to do with Bletchley Park because the Bletchley Park story is unquestionably a good story. It's a question of a society facing an existential threat and deploying human ingenuity in order to deliver an amazing kind of breakthrough in combating that evil. Cuddly mathematicians, and we know they're all cuddly. Well, well, <laughs> Especially <laughs> well, the Hollywood version. The, yeah, the Hollywood version. Yeah, but the, but the, the point is that the Bletchley Park story is really good, and I, I've never met anybody who didn't think it was a good story. Okay. GCHQ came from two huts in Bletchley Park. Okay, so GCSQ actually sprang from from Bletchley Park. And sometimes I think the reason people in this country are so relaxed about it is because GCSQ comes trailing clouds of enigma glory, as it were. That may be fanciful, I don't know, but but I can't think of any reason why people should be so relaxed about it. Uh, Maybe it's the other reason, of course, is that they may have bought the if you have nothing to hide, then you have nothing to fear mantra. Uh, it's quite interesting in the context of the current election in the last few days, the way in which Malcolm Rifkind, who who's, was the chief overseer of the, of the security services, um, suddenly discovered that things that he was doing that were perfectly legitimate, absolutely legitimate in private, they didn't look so good when they were exposed. So I've been wondering what Malcolm Rifkind now thinks about if you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear. I, I imagine he's thinking again. <laughs> be interesting to see. Thanks to John Norton for some fascinating insights, though maybe we're still being a little gloomy. Now back to our regular panel. Chris, you were an early adopter of the new technology and you're an inveterate tweeter. What do you think this technology has to offer democracy? I'm not sure. I joined Twitter in 2010 because the media was talking a lot about how the previous election had been the blog's election and this was going to be the Twitter election and I wanted to see what it looked like from the inside and then I liked it there so I stayed. But one of the senses I have is that the politicians have never quite worked out how to exploit this medium for their own gain. The joke everyone makes on Twitter all the time is that the politicians simply go on and on about what a fantastic reception they're getting on the doorstep. It's very easy to parody the way that MPs tweet. That's not to say I think it's irrelevant from the point of view of democracy. It's a great place where people can have the kinds of conversations they want to have, which means repeating party slogans or shouting at people they disagree with, or in fact having more quieter, low-key conversations with people around the world or around the country of matters of mutual interest. That's what Twitter's great for. Whether that has an impact on how people vote... I don't know. I suspect some of what uh, celebrities with large followings do may have an impact. Uh, Famously, Andy Murray on the morning of the Scottish election came out as a nationalist, as a pro-independence voter. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if that energised some, not that many, but some Scots to change their votes at the last moment. He's a very popular figure in Scotland. Uh, But beyond that kind of thing... 
this still seems to me like complicated and confusing terrain. Unfortunately, most of the social media from the parties has been completely sanitized. They don't know how to engage with it in an effective, natural way. And so standard message boards, message windows are driving what's happening on most of the social media channels. You don't get that feeling that you're seeing something that you won't get from a standard speech or a standard interview. We've been talking about having more online engagement. We've been saying that the last election and the election before were the first internet elections. In this country, that's just not true. It is a huge gulf when you look at the type of engagement you see in America and you see the type of operation that's being driven to produce engagement and to produce voting behavior and to produce an understanding of message that is far beyond what is done here. The Speaker just ran a commission on digital democracy. The Speaker of the Speaker House of the Commons. And the report came out. It had too many recommendations. It had 26 recommendations, which was a silly idea. Of them, one got all the headlines, which is that we should be able to vote online by the time of the next general election. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is beside the point. The rest of the report was essentially trying to update Parliament to actually make sure that people understood what Parliament did. Nothing to do with online. So even when they try to do online, they miss the mark completely. And do you get any positive vibes coming off the new technology for this election? Not particularly for this election. I think that there was some creative uses of it in the Scottish election in terms of giving alternative voices. And I think an important part of understanding what went on in the Scottish election was the way in which a narrative emerged about the mainstream media, which represented, as far as many Scottish nationalists was con- were concerned, the establishment view, and that it was important to be able to break out of that and have their own voice, and that social media and blogging, actually in this case as well, was, was a crucial element of that. I also suspect that democratic politics can bring out the worst aspects um, of the internet, and I think the election, which I think probably was the first social media election, which was the 2008 US presidential election, did that because what it did more than anything was reinforce people's tribal identity, both in terms of the struggle between Clinton and Obama during the Democratic nomination process and and then thereafter, that it almost became about people getting their fix of who politically they were by the way in which that they engaged through the internet. That just reinforces tribal aspects of democratic politics. But I think that we should in the interest of being positive as well as negative, see that it does have the potential for having wider political discussions than what relying on the mainstream media allows. And even just to offer a defence of tribalism, sometimes to go back to where we started this discussion before we spoke to John Norton, we have to remember that tribalism itself is one of the things that drives voter turnout, that more people are going to vote. It may be because more people are feeling a bit tribal about it. Tribalism does drive some people to turn out, but I think it also drives other people not to turn out. And I think that it's a mistake to think that in democratic politics that everyone belongs to a tribe. There are a lot of voters who don't, and they get put off by the tribal aspects of politics. So again, we're back to a positive and a a negative story. story. Tribalism helps the tribalists, but it doesn't necessarily help the rest of us. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks, as always, to our contributors, Helen Thompson, Finbar Livesey and Chris Brooke, our special guest, John Norton, And for production, Hannah Critchlow, Francis Durnley and Lizzie Presser. Join us again next week when our guest is going to be Claire Jackson, the historian and TV presenter, whose acclaimed series last year on The Stuarts told the story of the dynasty that first united England and Scotland and was broadcast on the BBC in the run-up to the Scottish independence referendum. And I'll be asking Claire how long she thinks the union can survive. My name is David Runciman. This has been Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. 
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.